As we come to Deuteronomy 6, Moses is sharing that message, that last sermon of his life before he steps into eternity with the future generation that's going to go into the land. They're going to be led by Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies with the good reports who were over 20 that didn't perish in the wilderness. And Moses is letting go of his ministry and his calling. He's given one last sermon, and this is it. So we pick it up in chapter 6 as he's expanding and expounding on God's law. He said this, Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house on your gates." These are the first nine verses of chapter 6 here in Deuteronomy, and there's a lot here. There's good stuff. So first of all, as the Spirit is guiding Moses and he's going forward and helping this next generation really understand where the blessings are, he reminds them of generational connection. You you pick that up there where it says there in verse 2 that you keep all the statutes and commandments, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. God definitely has a design. We talked about this on Saturday night, teaching the Ten Commandments with the Fifth Commandment on honor your father and your mother. But God has a definitive design for the family unit and generational righteousness. And I think of the proverb where it says, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And that's practical, but how much more so does a righteous man or a righteous woman leave an inheritance to their children's children, that's spiritual because the greatest inheritance we can leave our children is an inheritance of faith, an example of faith. And we get all that here in this passage with the Shema in between this. So we start with these generations and yet again we're reminded that generations are in motion. And I wish I would have really caught this a little sooner in my life. I really see it so clearly now at 60. I kind of saw it at 40. I definitely was completely unaware of it at 20. And Though most of us are a little bit older here tonight, not all of us, some of us are younger in this assembly, but we realize how fast life goes. And you have this little, this window, if you will, between 20 and 40, where most people, when they're having children, have children in that window, and they have children. And you figure out sort of your calling and your career, and you, you might move around a lot, or you might live in one place and just do what you're called to do, and you're doing your thing. And those children, as they always say, we, we, all the parents say this, when they look at little kids and they're now grandparents, they say, oh, it goes so fast. And it does go so fast. Children grow up so fast. And no matter how many times you heard that when your kids were young in the 90s, I did, they grew up much faster than I ever anticipated. They would grow up and they grow up fast. There's a brief window where you can really pour into them and then they get incremental freedom and then full freedom. And you have to let them go as adults. And then they have children And you have to start all over again learning what role you can have with those grandchildren based upon 
how your children, adult children are raising those kids and how you're involved, how you're invited to be involved in their lives and what you can do. But one thing you can always do for your children, your grandchildren, whether they're for it or not, is pray, right? That's the one thing you can always do is pray God's blessings over them, God's spirit upon them, God's word in them, and God working in their life. But just a reminder that the generation is in motion. And for me, again, watching, having my mother step into eternity just a year and a quarter ago, and then my father almost stepped into eternity, but then my father-in-law stepped into eternity during COVID in that last 15 months of my life, just this reality that there's one of our four parents are still left and my dad's 91 and watching how frail he's becoming uh, exponentially now as he's at 91 all of a sudden like things just really slowing down more than they ever did before which is very natural and very understandable for anyone in their 90s how that happens just to even make your 90s and to be healthy like my dad but realizing that as dad's up here we're right here and so once dad steps into eternity then it's it's almost like baseball, like who's on deck? You know, in baseball, you have someone on deck and someone's in the hole, like you're on the step of the dugout, but someone's on deck and someone's up to bat. That's three generations. The older generation, the one that's on deck, and the one that's in the hole. It's three generations, and that's what it's like. It's like softball or baseball. It's like that. And so now I'm like, like I'm on deck. I got the donut. I'm going like, whoa, <laughs> batter up, because I'm about to step into the plate, and it's going to be that last 20-year run, if you get to live that 20 years, and there it is, and I'll soon be like my mom gone, or my father-in-law gone, my mother-in-law gone, or like my father, very elderly and needing uh, professional care to take care of him at this point. So we're reminded how brief life is here, and how important it is that in the journey, we are infusing faith into our own life, and we're infusing faith into the next generation beneath us, and the generation underneath us. And of course, when you get a little bit older, you're thinking about generational wealth and being able to bless your adult children and then have it bless your grandchildren. But then, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, you're going to be gone someday, and whatever they do with that short-term temporal wealth is going to just play out without you being here. But the, the greatest wealth, of course, is spiritual wealth. And so even as Moses is starting to really get into his message, he's just reminding them, you might be young now, but you'll be older someday. And you'll have adult children, and you'll have grandchildren, and God is giving you this land to be enjoyed for you, your children, and your children's children, and the Lord is over it all, which brings us to the Shema. So just a reminder that we are in generations in motion, and we need to embrace where we're at in this journey, and we need to fulfill it as best we can, and it's going to always be about faith. Whether it's faith received and expanded, or faith imparted, expanding, and and expanding to another generation— we move, we move toward the flesh and carnality. So we need to help those, we need to help our own lives and those underneath us, our adult children or children and our children's children to move toward the spirit. It's not going to happen naturally. It has to happen with effort and diligence and supernaturally with the spirit guiding it. And so he comes now from that statement that, that your days will be prolonged, that if you just obey his word in your life, your children's life and your grandchildren's life, your days will be prolonged. But then he brings up the Shema where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is the famous prayer of the Jews, which they still pray today, particularly in times of crisis. Like we might pray the Our Father when I was in 50-foot open seas, fearing for my life there at Waimea Bay when it was closing out at 10 in the morning and I was all alone. I didn't pray the Shema. I prayed the Lord's Prayer. I prayed the Our Father. 
But I can assure you, if I was Jewish, I would have said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And I would have prayed it in Hebrew, I'm sure. It's, a, it's the prayer of the nation for them. It was the prayer that acknowledged that God is the Lord and there is no other God. The Lord our God is one. Interestingly enough, the word here is not El, but Elohim. It's the unique plural noun that is translated sometimes God's plural. This, of course, is God in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you know much about the word Elohim in the Hebrew, it's compound unity, more than one within one. For example, when it says the rings of, along the tabernacle, the 50 rings that do what they do, they're one. There are 50 different rings, but they are one. They're in unison. It's the compound unity. And in marriage, when it talks about a man and woman becoming one, it's the compound unity. And so it's very interesting here that in the verse that the Israelites, the Jews, would proclaim, even to this day, Hero Israel, Lord our God is one. The word is Elohim, which implies God's triune nature as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's in their very Shema. And this is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with your strength. And then later on, we see in the New Testament, it adds that portion of your mind as well, your total being, that we'll love the Lord with everything we have. And we've been talking about this the last few weeks where we love God because he first loves us. It's not like a robotic thing where, or, or a, a scary thing like you're going to love God or else. That's not really how love works. But we are created to receive his love. And we'll see more of that in chapter 7. And so as we understand his love by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we will, the natural thing for, create, for the creation to do from the creator and understanding the creator's love for us and his sending his son, the redeemer, for us is to love him back. So it may seem religious if someone is religious. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's religious. But when you realize that the Lord who is one Father, Son, and Spirit sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins, and the Spirit confirms it, and the love of God is poured out upon our hearts, Romans 5, 5, by the Holy Spirit, then we understand it's very natural to love the Lord. It's, it's what we're created to do. So being born in Adam and sin, alienated from God, it's what we do not do. But when we're convicted by the Spirit and we receive that love of God, it's what we're going to do. It's the natural, supernatural thing to do. When you're saved, it's the natural thing of the new nature, it's the natural, supernatural thing to do is to love the Lord. So it's not religion, it's relationship because God loves us. That's the Shema. Then the latter part of verse 6 into verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you rise up, you're going to bind them, uh, you're going to write them on your doorpost. This is 24-7, the reality of the relationship with God in our family. That's what this is. This is not about church on Sunday or catechism on Wednesday for me. I remember as a kid growing up, we had church on Sunday. We'd go to Mass. And then I always remember catechism was like a different night. And that was kind of more fun because it was like kids my age. We ran around. They let us be kids. And they taught us some Jesus stories or whatever. So it was not, you know, it was a good thing actually in a lot of ways. But the rest of the week, it wasn't really like that's what governed our house. Like Jesus didn't, like it was something... Something we did, and I've shared this story in the past, but when I went to the success seminar in the 80s, 85 and 86, trying to get over the hurdle of being top 10 in the world to get to number one in the world as a pro surfer, they had all these things that we, we, we studied, and um, I got this book, like they had layers in this seminars, like how seminars are, you know, they get you in one layer, next layer, and, and it was how you're going to be just super successful, and so the last layer of the seminar, I went away to Northern California, and they gave us this book of wisdom. That's what it was called. It was just, you know, it's what men do. And 
I got what I deserved. I asked for it and I got it, you know. But I remember about a year later being at my father's house when I was just trying to get my life on track and pretty much lost after the attempted suicide. But in that book, it had that circle and it had the segments of life, like your health, your wealth, your business, your career, relationships, all these things. And religion was in that circle. It was eight, it was a pie or a wheel with eight things. And it had religion for eight things. And I'll never forget it, because after I was listening to K-Wave and Pastor Chuck and ordered some Chuck cassette tapes and all this stuff, and I was going forward, I had a Schofield Study Bible, and I pulled that stuff out of this drawer, and I was looking at that sheet, and there was that pie slice. And I, well, no wonder my whole life's been a train wreck, because Jesus has been one-eighth. My faith has been one-eighth of my life. I put religious goals in this slice that is one-eighth of what's supposed to be my whole life. Well, no wonder I try to take my life. Jesus is Lord of all or not Lord at all, right? And it was one of those moments that we've all had in our personal life where you just have like this epiphany where you realize like, oh my goodness, like this is, I've had all wrong. Like this is no wonder I ended up in a straitjacket. I thought Jesus is one-eighth of my life. We're created by him and for him and in him we consist. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one, and he's everything to us, and we're going to talk about him in the morning. We're going to talk about him when we wake up. We're going to talk about him when we go in the field. He's going to be a part of Boy Scout camping, Cub Scout, Weeblos. He's going to be a part of Little League Baseball. He's going to be part of club soccer with the daughter. He's going to be part of gymnastics. He's going to be part of homework. He's going to be, he's going to be part of everything. He's going to be part of the weekend. He's going to be part of snorkeling in Laguna Beach. He's going to be part of surfing in WSA and Huntington Beach. He's over everything. That's the way it's meant to be. So I didn't really have that so much that way growing up. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you did. But we did try to give that to our children. We tried to put Jesus, let Jesus be over everything in their growing up. And I can tell you with younger children now, when you're 60, you can't go back and redo it. Hannah's 30, okay? I can't go back and say, Hannah, let's kind of start all over with Salty the Singing Songbook. And, uh, you know, let's, let's start over with the Brentwood Kids and the praise songs and the hymns. Like, what we gave, we gave. What we did, we did. And one of the things that we really did with Worship Generation with our children is we tried to involve them and give them hands-on experience. So when I read a passage like this, this is one of my favorite passages about your children being involved. Ministry wasn't something that we did apart from our children. It's something that we did as a family. So all those road trips with the bands and whatnot that we did with Jeremy Camp and Phil Wickham and Scott Cunningham and Joe Henschel when he was, Joe Henschel was 17 with Farewell Down. Like, you know, we, 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 we went on tour with Joe Henschel when he was like a teenager at 17. And we brought our children so they're involved in the ministry. So Hannah's there at the merchandise tables helping out. Timmy, I remember uh, the One Way 101 trip. Timmy was... I remember a, a picture coming out of a Tescadero church where Timmy's carrying the, the snare drum kit and the, the drum stuff. He, he was a roadie. He was like in first or second grade. He was just doing what he was doing. We involved them. And that's what we want to do. And even now, many of us, our kids are older. We want to involve them in our ministry. We want to invite them to be a part of our ministry. That's why I love to turn the church over to Nate Gallagher every time he's here, my son-in-law. Let him lead worship. Let him teach. Let, him, let his band that he brought lead us in worship, right? Aren't we always blessed? And to see Hannah teaching now regularly, if you have never heard my daughter teach, she is an incredible teacher. She's got a double portion. You can go to the Vero Beach website and you can see the women's ministry 
she's teaching all the women now. And she knows the word. If I didn't do it then, we can't do it now. It came and went. So I think it's really important if you have younger children to realize now is the time to invest in them and make sure the Lord's not a Sunday, Tuesday thing, but the, or Saturday, Tuesday, whatever, but that the Lord's really over the day, that you call upon him. Our kids always remember when Jennifer had uh, this uh, physical attack in the car. We were going down south, and we are on Pendleton, and then all of a sudden she couldn't breathe right. She couldn't breathe. And we are in Pendleton stretch, kind of just past the power plant, really in no man's land, kind of by the lookout. So we, we committed to go to Tri-City Hospital, and we didn't know what to do, and Jennifer was gasping for air, and I, I was praying in tongues and driving 95 miles an hour. And we drove to Tri-City Hospital, and pull it to emergency room. And I'll tell you what, the kids all remember that day. They all remember. Remember, Dad? Who, but who, when the crisis came, who were crying out to? The Lord Jesus Christ in a heavenly language. They know who to cry out to when mom can't breathe. You'll walk on the way of the Lord. You'll talk about the Lord. See, if this is your every day with the Lord, with your family and your children, when they're younger, they know, you know, it can go that way when they're older. But when the, when the difficult day comes or the dark day comes, you don't have to manufacture who you are or change who you are. You are who you are, right? We're good. We're totally good. We're not, when the difficult day comes, we're not trying to manufacture our faith. If this is us, verse 7, that's who we are. When the doctors told us that our baby was not alive, that morning, I went for a morning devotion like I always did on December 31st. And Jennifer said the baby wasn't moving. And the Lord was over our day. And then we went to the hospital and they couldn't find a heartbeat. And it was the first few minutes of the new year, 1989. The doctor said, your baby's not moving, the baby's dead. This was already our day. This was already our day in our marriage. This has to be our day with our family. And this is now what we're trying to give to our grandchildren. When the Zippy and Belzy come over or we go to Florida with Clementine and Wilkie, we're trying to bring the Lord into it. And when it's a two-year-old, maybe they run by and you just pray blessings over them as they run by. You ever do that one? Maybe you don't put your hand out, but you just go, oh, Lord, bless them, guide them, lead them, direct them, protect them from evil. But, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, I'm sort of like, like that. Oh, hey, Clemmy. And that's what we do. That's, that's who we are. We need to encourage our adult children to raise their children the same way. But as you already know, you can't make your adult children take their grandkids, your grandkids to church, right? If you haven't figured that one out yet, you love hopes all things and you pray. And then you do what you can when you have the opportunity. But no one can ever stop you from praying for your children or your children's children. Oh, this, this verse was like a life verse. And now we're 60. And now it's our grandchildren and our children that are adults. You hope for the best. Verse 10, we read on. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your father, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you've eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and you shall take oaths in his name. 
You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you, for the Lord our God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord our, your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in a time to come, saying, What does it mean in the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all this, his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us life that he might preserve us alive as it is to this day, then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all the commandments before the Lord your God as he has commanded us. So obviously Moses is just emphasizing the important need for obedience to God's word. I mean, we're just getting this throughout the book of Deuteronomy the whole time, is the necessity and the importance of obedience to the obvious word of God. Now, there's a good warning here where he says when you've gone into this land and you, you know, the Lord gives you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you've eaten are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord. This does bring up that danger of prosperity. There it, it would seem poverty and persecution does more to strengthen our faith than prosperity. That would seem to be the case in human history. And it's been well pointed out that most often when there's prosperity for a nation and a generation, usually the following generation has no concept of how the prosperity came about, how the blessings were there. They take it for granted and they train wreck it and usually are nowhere near the Lord, much like at the end of Joshua's life when he said two generations later, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, but you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do. And the people chose from the prosperity that was passed on to them from Joshua and Caleb and the victories of those who went into the land, that next generation, we're told, a generation arose that did not know the Lord or the works of the Lord. And what did they do? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So when you look around us at our country, when you study church history and you see the demise of other great countries in times past that were so strong in the gospel at one point and no longer are, you will often find that great prosperity that most prosperous generation with temporal wealth often was spoiled that the following generation didn't understand how it came about. And, you know, my grandparents and your grandparents came out of the Depression. And a nickel was a nickel and had great value. And then the next generation understood that to some degree, and they worked hard, and they had the American dream when, like, Eisenhower was president. And it's like, that three-bedroom, two-bath house for 17000 in Huntington Beach, Pacific Sands, 1961, like that whole thing. And our parents worked extremely hard. Maybe they worked for Boeing or these other people. And all these, they were in the military, and they got out of the military, and they took all these good jobs, and they built Orange County, and they did all these things. And you talk about the boat immigrants that came from Vietnam and what the Vietnamese did that generation, how hard they worked to build lives for themselves in Garden Grove and Westminster and these places, actually all over the, the country, and how hard they worked. But then you can get the next generation 
and they forget. They don't know what it's like to be boat people fleeing the Khmer Rouge. They don't know what it's like to go to the, the movie, save up all week that nickel to go to the movies on a Saturday, like my dad, when his dad was gone in World War II in the South Pacific. They just don't know. And then you end up with the baby boomers that feel pretty entitled and everything's handed to them and they rebel against all the structure that brought the blessings upon them. And now we have this. And it's not a depressing thing. It's not meant to be a negative thing, but it's reality. This is the context. When you enter in and you've got all that good stuff that you inherited, that you inherited, be careful. Be careful lest you be moved from the Lord. You forget the Lord who gave it to you. Some people can only do well with the Lord when they're hanging on by a thread. And you ever know some people just cannot handle prosperity with the Lord. They train wreck right away. As soon as they're like, get out of jail card is played, then they rebel and all these things go wrong. They're back in jail and then they play the Jesus card to get out of jail again. I don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. We've got temporary wealth. We want to sow it bountifully. We want to let the Lord use it. And we want to be very wise and frugal with all that God gives us. And Jeshurun is another title for Israel. And we see this later on in the Bible where it says, Jeshurun grew fat like a fatted calf. And we just, we have to be so careful Inheritances, inheritances are something interesting because Israel, it was all an inheritance. We realize that, right? They didn't have a career where they earned this. They didn't have good benefits where they got this. They didn't make all the right decisions with a 401k or an IRA. God said, obey me, fear me, and do what's right, and I'll give this to you. So I'm going to give you vineyards. What is that? That's wealth. It's property. It's wealth. Wells. All the things. I'm going to give you what's already established wealth and how to gain more wealth. I'm going to give it to you. But be careful that you don't lose sight of me as the one who gave it to you. It's a a powerful word. That's the tricky thing about leaving a bunch of money for your kids. It can destroy them. It can. When I was with my sister in Vero Beach last week, she said, talking about one of her friends who's worked so hard to rebuild her life, she came into an inheritance and immediately went, with her boyfriend, went back to hard drugs and everything, and they're just wasting it on drugs right now. It's blowing through thousands of dollars. I said, you better tell them to buy a house in another state. It'll be gone in a year. What are you going to do? Whatever we're blessed with, let us say thank you, Lord. Let us trust in the Lord. Let us acknowledge him with our wealth. Let us sow it bountifully and store up treasures in heaven. For where our treasure is, our heart will be also. We read on uh, one other thing that we see here that's very important in this text is when it says in verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and you shall take oaths in his name. This is actually the verse that Jesus quotes in his threefold temptation with Satan in Luke chapter, excuse me, in Matthew chapter four and also in the gospel of Luke. Also, verse 16 is one of the verses he quotes as well. You shall not test or tempt the Lord your God as you tested him, tempted him at Massey. So these verses are significant, 13 and 16, because Jesus quotes them when he was tempted by Satan. Doesn't that make you appreciate Deuteronomy that much more? Because in Adam, all sin and die. And Adam fell to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Jesus, the second Adam, is tempted with all three things, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. And when he's tempted, God in a human form, son of God, son of man, he shows us the way of victory by knowing the scriptures quoting the scriptures, and standing on the scriptures when tempted. 
which reminds us of the psalm where it says, Thy word, O Lord, I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And that's how Jesus resisted the devil. Then we're told in 1 John that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. So we have, we know that any attack to tempt us and stumble us and trip us up in sin comes in one of these three forms, if not all three put together. And we know from Jesus that the volitional will, the choice, the self-determination with the power of the Holy Spirit to help us, James says, resist the devil and he'll flee. So we're going to resist the devil by standing on the scripture. We need to just put the scripture in us. How can a young man cleanse his way? It's by taking heed according to your word. And it, it never stops. From start to finish until this journey is done, we need to keep taking in the word of God and standing on the word of God and just not being moved from the word of God. It's our, it's our anchor. It's everything. Jesus is our everything, but his word is the strength to stand. And Jesus shows us how to do that. So we're going to worship the Lord and him only we're going to serve. That's what he said when Satan said, bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And then um, when Satan said, jump from this temple and show yourself God, do something dramatic. And he says, no, that's, that's, that's foolish. That's testing the Lord your God. So these two passages are very significant because Jesus Christ quotes them in his victory over the devil in Matthew chapter 4. So we have to acknowledge that. And he shows us how to have the victory in temptation quoting these two plus another one later on in the book. Now we come to chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show them mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be around against you and destroy you suddenly but thus you shall deal with them you shall destroy their altars break down their sacred pillars cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire for you are a holy people to the lord your god the lord your god has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth the lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples but because the lord loves you And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he's God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, and who repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Wow. Well, this all starts off with when you go in there, not only are you going to inherit wells and vineyards and houses you didn't build or get, you're going to inherit this wealth that God's given you that someone else built up, but you're going to go in there, these seven nations are mightier than you. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, to through to Zerubbabel and rebuilding the temple in the book of Zechariah. It's never by might, it's never by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we know it says in Corinthians that not many noble, not many you know, affluent are called, but God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The church is always the underdog. The people of faith are always the underdog because we, we don't strengthen ourselves in our own strength to take on other humanity and their strength and go head to head with them. 
Because our battle is not our battle against their battle. Our battle is the Lord's battle. So we have to, we learn to trust in the Lord. And we have to trust in his word, his promises, his covenants, and what he's called to do. Now, of course, again, this is the Mosaic Covenant, and there's involved war. There's involved justice. Their covenant involved mitigating justice and judgment on people groups in obedience to the Lord. Our covenant, the new covenant, does not involve that. That judgment took place on the cross. Judgment is not ours in that sense. We don't judge or condemn anybody. We discern and we can withdraw, we can warn, and we can exhort and reprove, but we don't judge. We're not judge and jury of any souls on planet Earth. We all understand that, right? And we're definitely not going to execute God's wrath on anybody because that's not for us to do. Jesus, God executed his wrath on his son, and he'll execute his wrath on an unbelieving world when it's his time to do so. But ours is to love, to forgive, to intercede for and stand in the gap and win people through humility, service, prayer, faith, love, all those things. So theirs is the context of theirs is, is it was war. It was war and it was judgment. Ours is spiritual war and God's going to deal with things. So this phrase jumps out at us because we're up against superior forces. We all know that on this planet right now. The church is up against what would appear to be in the time, space, and matter superior forces. The the people that hate God seem to control everything right now. And they seem to just be driving everything in a certain direction that feels so out of our control. It's a very helpless feeling watching it all. It's like watching something horrific that you can't turn away from and you can't do anything about. That's what it feels like right now on planet Earth for people who love Jesus. It's like a bad dream that you just can't wake up from because it just keeps getting worse and worse. Like, what's going to come next? And what does it all mean? Where's it all going? Like, this is like a, this is like a ride at Six Flags that you can't get off. And it's a very helpless feeling. It, it truly is. But I feel like most of humanity feels like it's a helpless feeling. I think most people feel very helpless over how much their world's changed in the last 15 months, whether you're an Italian, a Russian, Vietnamese, Chinese, American citizen, Chilean. A lot of the world is still under heavy lockdown. You can't just go surf in Venezuela because the surf's good today. There's, there's things that governments have done in the name of this crisis to abuse power. We all know that. It all feels like it's so much bigger than all of us. And yet, nothing changes for us. We're not to make covenants with evil. So we just got to know what we're not to make a covenant with. You look at that. You shall make no covenant with them. We're going to always be light. We're going to always be called. We're going to always be called to be light, moral light, truth, absolute truth in a crazy world of of changing truths. We're truth because Jesus is truth. His word is truth. We're salt because salt is a preserving element. And the church is a preserving element on planet Earth right now. We are the moral preserving element on this planet while most of the world is going immoral right off a cliff like lemming into the sea. So now more than ever, we just need to continue to have our convictions, have our character, and speak the truth. Speaking the truth in love that people can come to a saving faith. The wrath of man is not going to accomplish anything. But all all these surrenders and all these compromises and all these moving boundaries and capitulations, don't let it cause you to compromise your faith in Jesus 
and your convictions for the whole counsel of God. Because no matter what goes on outside these doors, we can always be the church when we gather here, when we sing songs to Jesus, we open his word, we fellowship, we break bread, and we pray. That's never going to be taken from us. It's never been taken from the church, and it never can be taken from the church. It's who we are. Which brings us to another good point. So, again, no covenant with evil. It'd be very easy to just make a covenant with evil right now. No covenants with evil. That stands out. Because we're in a covenant with God. God says, I made a covenant with you because you're a holy people. The church is set apart. And we're, if Israel was a special treasure, how much more the church? Think about this. Because God refers to Israel as his wife. And by the way, his unfaithful wife. Well, how does he refer to the church? He refers to us as his bride. Think about that contrast. Israel is his unfaithful wife. He called them that. He never calls his church that. His church is his bride. We're on the front end of the honeymoon, is what I'm saying. We're not on the back end of a bad marriage that went south. We're on the front end of an eternal relationship that is going from glory to glory. So we shouldn't get too upset when people are attacking the church specifically. And there are people attacking the church specifically, specifically and deliberately because they don't like the message of the church. But what he said about for Israel, he says for the church, he will not be slack with him who hates him. He'll pray him to his face. He's the faithful guide to his church. So whatever he allows his church to go through in the coming months and years, I mean, it does seem to be going fast. He's going to be faithful to us. If he's faithful to Israel, how much more to the church? Because God keeps his covenants. Israel was a special treasure to him so he could bring his son, the Messiah, to the world through Israel. But the Messiah has come, and the gospel's to the Jew first and the Gentiles to all nations. They had black and white version. We have full color. We have it. We have the complete covenant. And we're his bride. I don't get too unsettled about the future of the church because Jesus loves his church. And those who hate his church, he'll deal with them face to face. So when you see people attacking the church, twisting things, coming after Christians, Jesus said, blessed are you when they persecute you for righteousness sake and for my name's sake. Don't be moved. There's a blessing there. It'll all play out in eternity. I'm not in a hurry to see anyone get dealt with with the Lord face to face. And I definitely don't want to be in the camp of those who hate God. But there are many people who hate God and they hate Jesus and they hate the cross and they hate us because we're associated with him because we're his bride. They hate the groom, we're the bride. And there's nothing we can do about it. We can't make them love us because we love Jesus. We can only do what Jesus says to do, and that's to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies, and to forgive our enemies. You know, there's haters. They're right here. So if you ever wonder what God will do with haters, he says what he's going to do with haters right here. He will repay them to their face. And what could be worse than hating God persecuting his people, trying to ruin their lives, blaspheming his son, and stepping into eternity and seeing him face to face and being paid back by the king of kings. That's someone we need to pray for, that they don't live to see that day. Therefore, we will keep the commandments and obey the Lord. He'll deal with evil. 
we don't make covenants with evil, he'll deal with evil. We're a special treasure. We're his bride. We're special people. He's got our back. He'll see us through. Now we read on this last passage, verse 12. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you with the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, all the increase of your cattle, all the offspring of your flock, all the land which he swore to your fathers to give to you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also you shall destroy all the people whom the Lord your God delivered over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember... Well, what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so the Lord, so shall the Lord your God do to all the people whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornets among them until you are le- who are left, who hide themselves from you, are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you, and the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them all at once. Lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you, but the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their names from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not cover the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourself, lest you be snared by it, for it is abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination to your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like, like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. You shall be blessed above all people, verse 14. What a beautiful verse. You shall be blessed above all people. Know this, when you lay down tonight in Jesus' name and being in Christ, if you're in Christ, we're blessed above all people. Not that we see ourselves as better than anybody, but we're blessed. We've passed from death to life. We've gone from being aliens and enemies of God to being joint heirs with Christ and co-heirs in, 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 in this state. I mean, we're blessed. God's a blessing God. And he has set his spirit upon us as a seal of the redemption of the promise of the purchased possession. We're blessed. He's coming for us. He's not somewhere off in the universe unaware of what's happening on planet Earth. He's very much aware of what's happening on planet Earth because he, he, he knows the hairs on our head. He knows very much about the entire planet, what's going on and what's going on for all of us. All this catches us by surprise. It doesn't catch him by surprise at all. You might be surprised. The Lord's not surprised. Nothing catches them off guard. And we are blessed. So when you think things are going against us or against you and things seem out of our control, we are blessed by God in the big things and the little things that are entrusted to us. We need to accept responsibility for them and do the right thing and make the right decisions as best we know how. This is a time for wisdom. This is a time for good decision making in our personal lives and our families. And that which is entrusted to us, that's what we need to focus on. That which is beyond us, what are you going to do except pray? That's what we need to do. We're blessed people, and our blessings come from the Lord, and we got to just keep that in mind. He said there in verse 17, if you say in your heart, I'm really afraid, there's a lot of stuff that can make us afraid right now. There's a lot of stuff that can make us afraid. But we can't be moved by fear. He says there in verse 18, you should not be afraid of them. And he said again later on, so shall the Lord your God do to all the people whom you are afraid. We know the end of the story. 
people that fight God and fight Jesus, his son, fight the church. There's going to be a day. There's going to be a day when all these haters are going to say this. Listen to me closely. The wrath of the lamb has come and who is able to stand? That's something the entire planet's going to say in time, space, and matter somewhere down the road. And until that day comes, we need to let them know that the Lamb of God has come to save them from his wrath because he took the wrath that's upon them. So we just got to stay busy about the Great Commission and know that this is all going to get played out. It's all there in the book of Revelation. We know the end. We know what it says. And it's there for a reason. Now, one final thought there in verse 22. The Lord your God will drive out these nations little by little. There is a practical element in that because of the wild beast. It's it's self-explanatory. But there is something about little by little, isn't there? It's little by little. We know, like Jesus said, to him who has more will be given. To her who has more will be given. And I close with this thought, that if we're faithful with the little things, God will give us more. Like little by little. If you can handle this thing, then he can trust you with more things. It really is about being faithful. And it's God's increment. Like we don't want God to give us more than we can handle. And so we need to understand that what he's doing in our life, in us and through us, it might seem insignificant, but we're told not to despise the day of small beginnings. But sometimes God does work little by little. Think of Pastor Chuck for 17 years. Every time I drive through Arizona, I just think like, Pastor Chuck, Pastor, all these churches here for two years at a time, Tucson, Prescott, and these other places, he was like nobody. He worked at Safeway full time and pastored these four square churches and just did everything he could to love on the people. And it was little by little. And then, boom, it all happened, the Jesus movement. And it was just exponential. We can't despise the day of small beginnings. And when we're standing in God's promises and we're abiding in him, we need to be patient with little by little and know that that little by little is moving us toward the greater things that God has for us. And if we can just be faithful with little by little and the little things, we'll be just fine for all eternity. That's the simplicity of it all. Just be faithful with what we have and know that whatever increase God's giving, he's given it. And just to do the best we can, be faithful with it. Just know that he's got it and just make good decisions. That's, that's what the word is here on this last part. Don't be moved with fear. Know that God has this and all that's opposed to us, all that he has for us, it's going to go little by little. We should never underestimate little by little with the Lord and the, small, the day of small beginnings, but just to have faith and just seek to be faithful day to day with what God has for us. Because the great reality is we're out of here soon. Life truly is so short. It's amazing. So be faithful as best we know how in the simple things. Make the good decisions. No covenants with evil. Know that God's got our back. He calls us a special people too. We're his bride. Don't lose heart and keep the faith.